Uh, let me ask you a question this morning as we begin. What in your mind are the most important things, the most important priorities that a church can give itself to in order to fulfill the Great Commission? Jesus said to go into all the world and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that He has commanded. So my question is, in light of that great command of the Lord Jesus before He ascended to, the, to heaven, what are the priorities that a church should have in order to fulfill and be obedient to the Great Commission? I'll give you a second to think. I truly want you to come up with something in your mind. Okay, let's see how you did. Raise your hand if what came to your mind is the importance of evangelism and missions and fulfillment of the Great Commission. Raise it high. Okay, good, a number of you. Wonderful. Raise your hand if what you thought of as a church's discipleship ministry in all its format, the teaching of the word. Raise it high. Good, a number of you. You are well discipled. Praise the Lord. Now I have a question. How many of you, when I asked that question about obedience to the Great Commission, thought of the, the importance, the biblical importance of appointing godly qualified elders? You guys knew what I was preaching on this morning, didn't you? That's wonderful. Friends, although it may not seem all that exciting, I think that the raising up of godly qualified elders is one of the most strategic, important things that a church can do for the sake of the gospel. Why? Well, think about it with me. The New Testament reveals that the local church of which we are a part here at Redeeming Grace, the local church is the center, is at the center of God's purposes for his world. What is the primary vehicle that God has chosen to display his glory to the nations and advance his gospel in the world? That vehicle is the local church. The establishing of local churches, friends, is the end goal of missions. It's within the context of the church that God has designed believers covenant together in love to grow in grace and to learn and obey all that Christ has commanded. The Bible, friends, presents the Christian life as the church life. Christians grow within the church as the word of God is taught and as sound doctrine is applied to their lives. And who? Here's where we're going to tie a bow on this. Who are the ones that God has designed to be the primary ones, given the responsibility to teach the word and equip the saints for the work of ministry? It's godly, qualified elders. So if, at the, church, if the church is at the center of God's purposes for the world, and God has designed his church to be led by this particular type of leader, then it becomes apparent, doesn't it? why appointing competent, godly elders is so crucial, not just to individual churches like ours, but to the entire Great Commission enterprise in this world. There are just a handful of places in the New Testament letters where this gospel priority of, of appointing elders kind of bubbles to the surface. And one of those places is our passage this morning in 1 Timothy 3. So I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. It's on page 992 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, if you're just joining us for this series in 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy is a letter written in the mid-60s AD by the Apostle Paul to his ministry apprentice, a man named Timothy. Paul and Timothy together apparently had visited this church at Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted over a decade prior. And what they found when they visited this church was not a church thriving, not a church in good health, but a church struggling, beset by false teaching. 
men within the church were, were teaching a different doctrine than the ones handed down by Christ and the apostles. And so Paul, as an apostle, assigned Timothy to stay there in Ephesus, to work as the lead elder of the church and gain back that gospel ground. And so really, as we've gone through 1 Timothy, and as we'll continue to do so over the next several weeks, we'll see Paul alternate between instruction to Timothy on the one hand as the lead pastor, the lead elder there, and then instruction to the church at large. In chapter 2, Paul addressed the church prior, church's priorities in corporate worship. That's what we looked at over the last couple of weeks. And now in chapter 3, he moves on from a church's corporate worship to issues relating to a church's officers, to its leadership, to those appointed by the church to serve as elders and deacons. You might imagine, this makes sense, that given the damage, given the damage that the false teachers had done within the church, it was important now that the church understand the type of men they ought to appoint as elders and the type of men and women they ought to appoint as deacons. So let's read together 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be, uh, become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the, of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this text indicates that what was true of elders in, in Ephesus, in this ancient city, is true of elders in modern Goodyear. Paul begins by repeating the same phrase that he used back in chapter 1, verse 15, about Christ coming into the world to save sinners. He writes, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, you can bank fully on the truth and importance of what he's about to say. What Paul has to say to the church at Ephesus about appointing elders holds weight for us today, nearly 2,000 years later. And if the Lord tarries another two millennia, Paul's words would be equally important then as now. I think what Paul is saying is kind of his central argument of this text is this. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of the text that I trust will be the main idea of the sermon. There are few things more important to the life of a church than appointing godly qualified elders. There are few things more important to the life of a church than appointing godly, qualified elders. This morning, we'll look at two aspects of this role of elders in the life of the church. Number one, we'll see a noble task. We see that in verse one. And number two, in light of that noble task, the elder's noble profile. We'll see that in verses two to seven. A noble task, a noble profile. Beloved, I pray that the Lord might use his word in our lives this morning. I, I pray, I have been praying that this text might shape the aspirations of men in our congregation about the privilege of serving Christ's church as an elder. And I also hope the Lord would shape our collective conscience, that there is a certain type of man that we should be looking for to serve our church in this way. And so do, and I pray that the Lord might strengthen Redeeming Grace Church to be faithful to King Jesus in the days ahead. 
Let's look at this task. Number one, a noble task. Paul begins in verse one. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, before we go further, let me just be Captain Obvious here for a moment, okay? Friends, God has a design for his church. Let me say that again. God has a design for his church. No, the New Testament certainly is not laid out like a church manual, okay? But we have enough data from the commands of Scripture, from the the patterns of Scripture, from the descriptions of New Testament early church to put together what we would call a biblical ecclesiology. That is, the Bible tells us what the ecclesia, the church, the assembly is, how it should be governed and how it should function. And fundamental, really, to God's design is that local churches are to appoint pastors or elders who oversee the church's affairs, who shepherd the church by the teaching of the word. Now, we often refer to the men in this role as pastors, and that's all well and good. After all, Paul wrote in Ephesians 4 that when King Jesus ascended to heaven, what did he do? He poured out gifts upon his church. And what were one of those gifts? Pastors or teachers, shepherds. But the most common New Testament term for this role of spiritual leadership in the church is not the word pastor, but the word elder. It's based on the Old Testament idea of elders, men who helped lead the assembly of Israel. It's a word that if you think about it, it connotes dignity and respect. Just think of normal life, right? Those who are elders in our midst, those who are advanced in age, have a certain seniority about them, don't they? They command a certain respect and dignity given their age. Now, this doesn't mean that church's elders must be advanced in years, but that the maturity level of elders should be advanced right? So that they naturally slot into the dignity that the office commands. But notice in verse one, Paul doesn't say that those who aspire to the office of elder desire a noble noble task. Did you notice that? He says, those who aspire to the office of overseer desire a noble task. So what's the difference between elder and overseer? Well, there's not one. There's not one. Paul and the New Testament authors use three terms interchangeably for the one office. So pastor, elder, overseer, all refer to different aspects of the one role. If if Steve and Bo and I do a good job as as overseers or or elders here, we don't graduate from elder to overseer. And then one day we get our overseer diploma and graduate from overseer to pastor. No, we serve together as pastor, elder, overseers. The term pastor means shepherd. It implies guarding and nurturing and leading the church. Elder implies the dignity of the office and overseer appoints to to the spiritual supervising of the church that the pastor elders do. Earlier, we read from Acts 20. Claire read from Acts 20, where several years before the writing uh, of 1 Timothy uh, in, in Ephesus, Paul gathered the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him in Miletus. And when he gathered those elders in verse 28, if you're looking at your bulletin, it's right smack dab in the middle of that reading. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. There's sheep in a flock that these men shepherd in which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his blood. So these, he gathered the elders, told them they shepherd this flock, and he called them overseers. It's three interchangeable terms for the one office. 
We're to lead and teach and oversee, not for our own good, for our own agenda, but for the good of church, the church that God has entrusted to us for the glory of his name. Now, okay, that short ecclesiology lesson being done, let's turn our attention back to what Paul is getting at here in 1 Timothy 3. Paul begins his discussion about elders by framing it in terms of what? In terms of aspiration or desire. Now, why does he start this way? I don't know for sure, but perhaps the office of elder had taken a public hit at the church at Ephesus, given the fact that these these false teachers, perhaps even these false teachers had arisen from among the ranks of the elders. We don't know. That had corroded the life and ministry of the church. Maybe Paul is seeking to restore the church's understanding of the inherent dignity and goodness of the office itself. This makes sense to us, doesn't it? Even today, people are often skeptical of church leadership because they've been hurt by leaders in the church, or they've seen pastors fall and disgrace themselves in the name of Christ. The improper use of leadership by elders is often incredibly damaging to the flock and to their gospel witness. But friends, the answer isn't for churches or or Christians to retreat from appointing men to the office or to to walk away from the church. The right response isn't for, for Christian men to give up aspiring to be an elder because they've seen poor examples. Rather, the answer is for churches to train and to install godly and competent elders to care and shepherd the flock in a God honoring way so that the church by grace flourishes under their care. Paul here commends, doesn't he? He commends a brother's aspiration to be an overseer by commending the office itself. Do you see that? He says, if anyone desires or aspires to the office of overseer, he desires what? A noble task. Literally, in the Greek, he desires a good work. And why? Why does Paul reserve such high praise for the role? I think it's because of how precious the local church is to the Lord. Did you notice how Paul spoke of the church uh, uh, to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So precious, friends, is the church to God that Christ the Son died to obtain it. We as God's people are bought with a price. Christ so loved the church, Ephesians 5 says, that he gave himself for her. We've been redeemed at an unfathomably high cost. The church is precious to the Lord. It's the apple of God's eye. It's at the center of his purposes for the world. And so, friends, men who aspire to shepherd God's flock and to to lead and protect Christ's church place themselves in line with God's desires for his people. They desire a good and noble work. The verse is very simple and straightforward. So let me just give you a few applications, I think, from this, this verse, verse one. First application, we should appoint men here at Redeeming Grace Church to be elders who desire to be elders. <laughs> I, I know that seems simplistic, but I think it's an important point. Certainly just because a man desires to be an elder doesn't mean that he should be. We all know that. He may not be qualified. He may not be gifted particularly for the work. But on the other hand, if a man doesn't desire to be an elder, friends, we probably should not put him in the office as an elder. We should not have to twist someone's arm to serve in the role. Peter, in his epistle in uh, in chapter 5, wrote that elders should serve willingly 
and even eagerly, not out of compulsion or for the money. Elder ministry friends ought to spring from a strong desire to shepherd the church of God, not out of some sort of slavish duty. Friends, to install men who don't desire to be elders would be dangerous for the church because it would put men in the precarious position of serving for the wrong reasons or serving for the wrong purposes. Number two, second application. Friends, we ought to encourage a man's desire to serve as an elder. In general, we ought to encourage this desire. Sometimes I think that you know, we get the idea that if someone has the desire to serve in church leadership, well, somehow his motives must just be off. He must be power hungry. Now, that aspiring to be an elder implies pride. Now, there's, there's no question, friends, that accompanying the desire for spiritual leadership is a temptation to pride. There's no question. But brothers, Paul doesn't say here, if anyone desires the office of an overseer, let him check his heart for pride. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, if anyone desires the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He's trying to push brothers' desires toward the work. I think Paul would want to take brothers aside who want to be serve as a pastor or an elder in church leadership and mentor them and disciple them and engage whether they're a fit for the role. And if they are, he would try to stoke that that spark into flame. Brothers, if you desire to serve the church as an elder, let me encourage you, Make that desire known. Don't kind of just you and Jesus it. Like tell someone, tell a member and say, hey, do you think God might be doing a work in my heart? Uh, Take an elder out to coffee and say, hey, do you see me one day serving in, in this role if I continue to grow? What things in my life do you think I need to work on? Do you think I'm gifted and qualified? If not, how can I grow in this? We'll give you feedback, I guarantee it. And pray that the Lord would sift out poor motives and help you pursue the desire for the right reason. But in general, we should encourage brothers who aspire to the work of elder. Number three, brothers, let me speak to you for a moment. I spoke to you two weeks ago. I'm going to speak to you again, okay? Brothers, you ought to place yourself in the path where the Lord might give you a desire to be an elder. Now, I want to tread carefully here. Because I never want to imply that, that eldership, being a, a pastor in the church, is somehow like next level Christianity. That is not it at all. But I do wonder if more men don't aspire to give themselves wholeheartedly to the leadership of Christ's church because their, their hearts are preoccupied with other things. One thing I know is that local churches need more men whose hearts are captivated by a love for Christ and a love for his word and a love for his church. Brothers, all of us should be pursuing godliness, every single one of us. All of us ought to be pursuing a deepening knowledge of the scripture and a maturity and wisdom in our Christian walk. All of us ought to aspire to work and serve the church for her good, whether in leadership or not. All of us ought to be investing in the lives of other Christians and seeking to lead them towards spiritual maturity, whether it's officially as a pastor or unofficially as a believer. So brothers, let me tell you, if the embers of your heart aren't ignited by the good of Christ's bride, that's a problem. That's a problem. All of us, each of us should love the church of the Lord Jesus deeply, not because we're an elder, but because we're a Christian. We should work and pray for the good of the body, not because we're an overseer, but because we're a church member. 
As God does his work in us by his spirit, as we're faithful to him, you know what he's going to do? He's going to place within some men the aspiration or the desire to serve as an overseer in the church. And if God gives that desire to you, brother, just know that that desire is to, that he's given you is noble and it's good because you desire a noble task. Let's move on to the bulk of this passage, verses two to seven, and see this noble profile. You can see how Paul's description of an elder's qualifications flows right out of his statement that this is a noble task. Paul connects verses one and two by the word, therefore. Because those who aspire to the office of overseer desire a noble task, Paul says that their character and their competency profile should give credibility to their desire. I like what D.A. Carson said about this list. He said, it's remarkable, this list is remarkable for being unremarkable. I think that's right. It's not that the, the profile of an elder is, is unimportant, but rather this list of things that we're about to go through here in a, in a moment, this list is profoundly ordinary. Friends, elders are, are not required, thank goodness, to have the IQ of Albert Einstein combined with the magnetism of Barack Obama, combined with the leadership of Winston Churchill. That's, that's not what we've been called to do. In fact, so ordinary is this list that everything listed here applies to every single Christian, except for three things. Everything in here applies to every single Christian except for three things, being able to teach, managing your own household, and not being a recent convert. This should be a relief, I think, for elders and the congregation alike. It should be a relief, friends, because at the end of the day, the congregation should not expect much more of an elder than they expect of themselves. Let me say that again. Based on this list, the congregation shouldn't expect much more of an elder than it expects of itself. We're not talking about a situation here where the elders are expected to be men of marital fidelity, but it's okay for the church members to sleep around. The elders can't get drunk, but by gosh, ordinary Christians can get hammered whenever they want to. No, this profile is largely the profile, not merely of an elder, but what every Christian should aim their life toward. As elders exhibit in an exemplary way the virtues expected of, all, expected of all the people of God, the congregation is encouraged to follow their example and to pursue holiness together. So friends, as we go throughout this list, guard your heart, guard your heart from thinking that this text does not apply to you. The vast majority of these things are traits that all of us should be pursuing by God's grace. And certainly all of us should have our head on a swivel looking for these things, having these things in mind, as the profile of those we task with the responsibility of serving as elders among us. Paul continues in verse 2, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. One thing that's challenging about preaching a text like this is we're just going to have to stop on individual words all throughout this. That's not normally how we preach, is it? We preach more in ideas and sentences, but in this, we really have to get down in the nitty gritty, okay? So an overseer must be above reproach. All the rest of the qualifications fall underneath this broad umbrella category. Friends, this, this does not mean that elders should be perfect. Thank the Lord that is not what it means. If the expectation were perfection, well, no church would have any elders. You ought not to expect Steve, Bo, and I to be flawless. You should expect us to be above reproach. 
Elders should be free of glaring sin patterns that bring into question their fitness to serve in the office. They ought to be evidently godly men. The message that an elder preaches or teaches should be easily backed up by his life. Paul continues that the first way an overseer is above reproach is in his marital or sexual life. He writes that he must be the husband of one wife. I think it's significant that both in this list and the list in Titus 1, Paul mentions marital fidelity as the first thing in the list, right under being above reproach. Perhaps there is no more obvious way to disqualify oneself from elder work and no more quick way for elders to discredit their ministry than unfaithfulness to their wife. This, this phrase, uh, husband of one wife, is actually three words in the Greek. He must be a one-woman man. That's how it is in the Greek, one-woman man. You've probably heard some interpretations of this phrase. Some have said that Paul is here forbidding single men to serve as overseers because he's not a husband of one wife. Well, friends, if that were the case, then Jesus would be prohibited from being an elder. Paul himself would be prohibited from being an elder. So I don't think that's what he's saying. Rather, Paul is writing to a church in a culture where the normal expectation was that Christian men would be married. It's the same today. Single brothers may indeed serve as elders if they're qualified, but most we expect most pastors or elders to be married. Some have said here that Paul forbids those who have been divorced or remarried from, uh, as violating the one-woman-man qualification. Well, certainly unbiblical divorce and remarriage would likely prevent a man from serving as an elder, especially if that divorce and remarriage happened after he became a Christian. But the Bible makes allowance for divorce and remarriage under certain specific grounds. So that's not likely what Paul had in mind here. Others have said that by a one-woman man, Paul is forbidding polygamy. You know, when I was in... uh, Ross Alkaima in the UAE last week, Doug Reed told me that it's not uncommon for Emirati men to have a wife and family in Dubai and a separate wife and family in Ras Alkaima. But he said also that most Emiratis only have one wife because they want to avoid the headache. I guess so. But friends, what would happen? What would happen if one of these, these polygamous Emirati men came to faith in Jesus? And they joined a local church. Should that man who has two wives and two families become an elder after several years, assuming that he's kept his commitment to his wives and families? Well, no, I think Paul would say because his situation is not patterned after the biblical ideal of a single husband and wife bound together in covenant love, he shouldn't be an elder. But beyond polygamy, Paul here is emphasizing a principle of marital loyalty and sexual fidelity to one's wife. Friends, like all Christian men, elders ought not to cheat on their wives physically or emotionally or mentally. Elders ought not to seek the attention of other women or flirt with other women or fantasize about other women. They are, in, they are bound in covenant to their wife. They ought to give themselves wholly in love in, to their wife in body, mind, and spirit. Perhaps Paul has in mind here what he wrote earlier to the church at Ephesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church as he gave himself for her. For brothers who are single and desire to be elders, you too, brothers, should aim your life toward holiness in your sexuality. You ought to be marked by a pursuit of godliness and self-control. 
The next three qualifications listed in verse two, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, they're all related, I think. An elder ought to be marked by clear-headed thinking. That's what it means by sober-minded. He shouldn't be rash, shouldn't be unstable, not distracted by every fad or trend. And if an elder is thinking soberly, if he's thinking realistically and with a clear head, then he's going to make every effort to restrain his appetites and attitudes. He'll be self-controlled. And if his inner life is self-controlled, then his outer life, what people can see, will be worthy of respect. He'll be respectable, a man of dignity. Friends, I actually think Paul highlights an elder's self-control throughout this list. So I'm going to kind of take this list out of order at this point because I want to show you this. Notice in verse 3, Paul changes his language from what an elder should be marked by positively to what he shouldn't be marked by negatively. And all of these things that an elder should not be marked by, well, they're related to self-control of his appetites and attitudes. Look at it. He ought not to be a drunkard. He ought not to be violent but gentle. He ought not to be quarrelsome and not a lover of money. In verse 3, Paul says that those who desire to lead the church shouldn't be a drunkard. Rather than being controlled by alcohol or controlled by any other substance, Men, we ought to bridle our appetites by the Spirit. Those who struggle with drinking excessively or substance addiction ought not to be an elder. Friends, all it takes is one misuse of alcohol. Let's be, let's be honest. All it takes is perhaps even one misuse of alcohol to cause serious harm and to bring disrepute to the name of Christ. But it's not just appetites that an elder must control. He must have mastery of his attitudes and actions. Verse three says an elder must not be violent, but gentle. If a man has an explosive temper, he ought not to serve as an elder. If he's known to be pugnacious and irritable, he's not the man for the job. Practically, friends, elders are often called upon to kind of navigate interpersonal conflicts, even handle doctrinal disagreements between believers in the church. A man with a violent temper is not gonna solve these types of issues. He'll make them worse. He'll not defuse the grenade. He'll pull the pin and toss it into the situation. Rather than tenderly caring for the flock, a violent man will deal with the sheep roughly. So he ought not to be one of Christ's under-shepherds. Closely related, an elder must not be quarrelsome. His, in, his instinct, friends, shouldn't be to throw down on every issue. He won't pick fights unnecessarily. He knows how to discern the difference between standing on conviction and allowing for freedom of conscience. He understands which hills to die on and which are not worth dying on. And positively, friends, rather than being marked by a violent temper or quarrelsome tendency, an elder should be gentle. This quality is also a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Along with self-control. You remember when we studied... uh, Matthew 11. We were going through Matthew last semester. We got to chapter 11. What did Jesus say is one of his defining marks? He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? He said, for I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart. He said, a bruised reed I will not break and a smoldering wick I will not quench. Friends, our Lord Jesus was marked by humility and love for others. He was patient, and his patience produced in him a gentle handling of others' sin and suffering. So does does this mean that an elder must be soft? That he must be wimpy? No. 
There are times when the elder's staff that we use to keep sheep in the fold is likewise used to fend off wolves and to protect the flock. Elders are charged by God to to guard the perimeter of the church from false teaching and to guard it from threats of disunity. Elders should not shy away from conflict when conflict is forced upon them. But even when they engage in this type of shepherding, their attitudes ought not to be vindictive or temperamental, but steady and gentle and tender. In Paul's mind, it's necessary on the one hand, as he instructed Timothy earlier, wage the good warfare, charge false teachers, stop teaching false doctrine, and at the same time, be marked by gentleness, not violence, not brawling. Friends, we need elders who are marked by this type of gentleness of our Lord Jesus, who ultimately went to the cross to lay his life down for us. The last thing that Paul mentions that an elder uh, ought not to be marked by is what he says there at the, I believe at the end of verse three, right? Yes, he must not be a lover of money. Now, if you've been reading ahead, friends, in 1 Timothy, you've seen that Paul is gonna spend ample time talking about the dangers for every one of us about the love of money. It poisons our life as the root, Paul says, of all kinds of evils. Friends, like all of these traits, elders are to set the example for the church in the way that they use their resources, about their perspective toward wealth. It's not that elders can't be wealthy, but that wealth shouldn't dominate their hearts. Friends, if an elder is obsessed by money, guess what he's going to be tempted to do? He's going to be tempted to pursue church leadership for the sake of personal wealth. If money dominates his heart, his instincts about the church finances might not be healthy. He, he might actually want the church to kind of selfishly hoard its resources rather than generously dispense funds to storm the gates of hell as part of Christ's mission. Quite the opposite of treasuring treasure, elders should treasure Christ above all and steward money well for his glory. But notice, as we keep moving along, notice this type of open-heartedness with resources is, is displayed in other ways too. I skip by one of the character qualities in verse two. It says an elder should be hospitable. Hospitality, friends, is being large-hearted and open-handed with one's resources, whether it's your time, whether it's your your money or, or your home. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of hospitality, I don't think of men. I think of women. I think of the women being especially gifted in this area, and maybe that's true, but here it is as a mark of men who want to serve as elders. It's not hard to see how this works, is it? Excuse me, a hospitable man delights to open his home to others. Perhaps he'll welcome visitors or, or new members of the church into his home to get to know them. He's not distant from the sheep. He's with them. Perhaps he's eager to host a home group because he he wants to facilitate the care of God's people in the church. Maybe he's known for connecting with other men for for lunch or for coffee or for prayer. He picks up the tab when he can. He's an hospitable man. Brothers and sisters, these are the areas of character that an elder may be able to credibly say to the church, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. And believe me, when I say that, I don't do so with arrogance. I do so with fear and trembling. Honestly, I I don't want to speak for Stephen Bowe, but I know my sinful heart. I know my areas of struggle and weakness. 
And so when I read these qualifications, my thought isn't to say, hey, look how exemplary I am. Look how exemplary we are. But rather to say, oh God, how merciful you are. I need your help. Brothers and sisters, I hope that's your response too. Because all of these things that I've mentioned are the qualities that we should pursue together by grace. We've been given all we need in Christ for life and godliness. You too can have this type of life of grace through the empowering of the, of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now let's look at two areas of competency that Paul mentions. His emphasis is clearly on character. Let's just get that out there. It, Paul's emphasis in this passage is not gifting. Did you notice that? It is character. I think this is the opposite of how we often think about pastors and elders. It's the, it's the opposite of we, what we often prize in our churches. We are often tempted to laud the publicly gifted, not affirm the godly. But that's not how Paul presents it at all. Rather, godliness is the focus of what elders should pursue because they're responsible to model for the church the type of life that we should pursue together. But here's what Paul says about an elder's gifting or competency. In verse 2, he writes that an, that an elder should be able to teach. An elder should have a good understanding of the scriptures and be capable of explaining them to others. It's through, friends, the teaching of the word that we as elders wield the authority that God has given us in this church. In fact, our authority only extends as far as the word of God extends. This doesn't mean that every elder should be adept at public teaching or preaching. Look over at verse five, uh, chapter 5, excuse me, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. Paul writes, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Friends, in other words, although all the elders should be able to teach God's word, it seems to be normal for a subset of elders to be given the primary responsibility for the public teaching and preaching of the word, presumably because they're gifted to do so. I think Paul gives us a good sense of what he means by this, this term, able to teach in a parallel text. So turn over to Titus 1. You're not far away. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter 1. There's this parallel list of elder qualifications there in Titus 1. Look what Paul says in verse 9. An elder must hold firm to the, trust, to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So friends, what does it mean that an elder must be able to teach? Well, it means that he's a man of biblical convictions. He understands the contours of the whole counsel of God. He's able to take the word and, and play good offense and play good defense, right? He can effectively shepherd the sheep by applying God's word to their lives. And he can use the word to, to, to kind of fence off the church, fence off the threats to the flock as well. Now, friends, this type of teaching role can be public, certainly. It can be in the gathering. It can be in discipleship classes and what's not and whatnot. But it could be that elders exercise this gift in small groups. As Paul says, not only in the gathering, but house to house. Over the coffee table, in a reading group. It's a narrow competency with a broad application. Being able to teach is a narrow competency with a broad application. I think it's helpful to understand that, friends, some elders are going to be more skilled in public discipleship, while others are going to be more skilled in personal discipleship. Some elders are going to lean toward public teaching, while others are going to lean toward private teaching. 
Each is essential for the building up of the body. There's one more competency that Paul mentions, but it's honestly a competency that's really grounded in faithfulness just as much as gifting. He says in verse 4, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Friends, not only must an elder be competent to teach God's word, he must be competent to lead. And where is the proving ground for his leadership? The executive office? The boss's chair? No, it's his home. Before an elder should shepherd the church, he ought to have proved that he is the shepherd of his family. Similar to Paul's point earlier, friends, about an elder being a, a one-woman man, he assumes that most elders will have kids. He's going to have a household. And those who do should have a, a good track record of parenting. It should be men who eagerly love and invest in their wife and their family, and whose family reciprocate that type of love and respect. It's a lesser to greater argument, isn't it? You see that? It's a lesser to greater argument. If a man can't oversee his household well, can't manage it and care for it well, how will he be trusted to oversee the household of God? If a man's home is chaotic, if his kids are out of control, Lord help, they're out of control because of his poor parenting, then we ought not to entrust him with leadership in the church. Likewise, if a man is uninterested in the spiritual discipleship of his family, we ought not to think that he'll all of a sudden kind of just click into his spiritual gear once he becomes an elder. So dads, dads in the room, if you aspire to be an elder, just realize, brother, that you are already enrolled in full-time training for your character and competency as a church leader. It's an in-home training course called Husbanding and Parenting 101. Give yourself fully to it. In church family, let me just talk to you for a moment about this. We together ought not to expect our elders to devote so much time to shepherding the church that we neglect to shepherd our own family. Now, I've never once thought that you as a church do that toward me or toward our elders, not once. Any lack of balance thus far in my ministry between ministry and family has been self-imposed. But please help us in this. Encourage us in this and pray that we would be faithful men in our home. Finally, Paul rounds out his teaching in verses 6 to 7 with two practical reminders. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into, into the condemnation of the devil. <coughs> it would be unwise, friends, and even harmful to quickly appoint a gifted new convert as an elder, lest that man think that he's farther along in his walk than he really is. The danger here is pride. Like Satan, who grasped in pride after God's role and was condemned forever, new converts ought not to be thrust into premature leadership so that they are not tempted in the same way. You can imagine a situation in which new converts are allured with the, with the, the role of leadership maybe the, the supposed glory, whatever that means, the, that comes with spiritual leadership in the church while completely misunderstanding the heavy weight that elders care, that elders have in the care of the church. Christians should really, friends, go through years of testing before being installed as an elder. Bobby Jameson said it this way in a book on pastoring. He said, a man should endure a few spiritual winters before being promoted 
to pastor. And might I add non-Phoenix winters at that. We should, yeah, you go through a few Phoenix summers before he's an elder. That's right. We should look for men with a proven track record of Christian maturity and ministry and teaching and disciple making. So, so friends, with that when we install these men as an elder, although there's an added weight and responsibility given that they're now holding an office, the expectation is they don't change the way they've been living. They don't change the way they've been operating or the, the way they've been leading. They keep on doing what they've been doing because they're proven. This is just who they are. In verse 7, Paul wraps up his list by saying this, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. The trap of Satan that Paul warns against here, friends, is hypocrisy. If a man is consistently godly, even unbelievers will recognize his integrity. If a man, though, is a saint at church, but a scoundrel at work or in the community, he has no business serving as an elder. So friends, brothers, perhaps a good diagnostic question for you is this, not only for your, for your aspiration to be an elder, but frankly, for your life and testimony as a Christian. Would anyone in your workplace be surprised to learn that you are a leader in the church? Would anyone in your workplace be surprised to learn that you're a leader in, your, in the church? Friends, guard your heart from hypocrisy of having a veneer of godliness while you're here within the body, but content with rot within and content to treat those in your sphere of influence poorly the rest of the week. Hypocrisy will bring you into disgrace and into the devil's snare. Now, as we close this morning, I want to offer three suggestions, three suggestions about what to do with this type of list. If you're a brother who aspires to elder work, your takeaways, friends, should be obvious. Brother who aspires this, pursue godliness. Pursue godliness with all you've got. And while all of us should do the same with you, I realize that most of us, friends, aren't receiving this list as the, the criteria for something we're actively pursuing with our hearts. So what should you do with this? Let me offer three things. Number one, pray. Pray. Pray that God would help Steve, Bo, and I to set the example for the flock in these ways. Friends, the elders, believe it or not, pray every time we, we come together that God would help us identify and, and train and raise up and appoint men just like this to serve among us here as, as elders at RGC. Friends, we all should pray this way. As we consider the future of our church, it will likely be tailored to our ability to raise up and appoint godly qualified elders. So beloved, let us pray. Number two, have your antenna up. Have your antenna up. In other words, be on the lookout for men who fit this profile. As you see brothers doing elder-like work, encourage them in their ministry. Ah, feel free to recommend to the elders men like this to serve as elders among us. Now, we formally, friends, whether you realize it or not, we formally take elder recommendations from the congregation once a year. It's required, actually, by our, our constitution and bylaws but you do not have to wait on that formal invitation. If you see a man doing this type of work and you want to let us know, please do so. Send us an email, give us a call, help us identify brothers to serve the church in this way. So pray, have your antenna up. And number three, process this list realistically. Process the list realistically. It would be easy to read this list and come away with entirely unrealistic expectations. 
that elders, well, if they are, if they're men who exemplify these qualities, they must just be like Christian Marvel characters, like totally unattainable to anything we can do, right? Nothing could be further from the truth. Fundamentally, elders are sinners saved by grace who owe everything to our Lord Jesus. If we are qualified at all to serve as elders, it is not because we have qualified ourselves, but because as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, God works in us both the will and the work of his good pleasure. And beloved, you can, you can attain godliness by God's grace. None of us will ever attain perfection this side of glory. We will all limp along, won't we, struggling in certain ways with certain sins till Jesus returns. But by God's grace, through the power of the gospel and through his spirit, we have been given the resources we need to kill sin and pursue Christ. And friends, as much as we pray that we would be men whose example you can follow, please do not put us on a pedestal. Please don't do that. Don't bank your hopes on human leadership on this earth. We will fail you. We will disappoint you. There's only one human leader who never will. That's the Lord Jesus. He's your flawless shepherd and overseer of your souls. His life was not only exemplary, but perfect. And yet in love, he laid down his life for us wayward sheep. And he healed us by his wounds on the cross. Friends, if you're here and not a Christian this morning, please understand that we, do, we don't want you to come here and, and, and worship with us and be with us here this morning and be enamored with us. We don't want you to be enamored with the elders or anything about our church. Nothing inherent here should impress you. Rather, we want you to come and be enamored with our King. We want you to be enamored with the Lord Jesus to the degree that you eagerly give your life to him and you worship him as your God. Friends, may God give us grace to raise up these type of men to appoint godly qualified elders to lead Christ church here at Redeeming Grace Church. Let's pray. Father, a list like this, it seems terrifying in some ways. It seems unattainable. Uh, it seems at times almost unrealistic, but we know, Father, that it's not. We know any thoughts of fear in our hearts are not put there by you, but by the enemy and by our own flesh. We thank you for the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus, for forgiveness of sins full and free. And Father, for an understanding that the Spirit actually is in the process of making us new and conforming us to the image of your Son. And so I pray that you would do that among all of us here at Redeeming Grace Church, that these would be the things that we aspire toward and then work toward together. But especially we ask that uh, you might raise up men in the church, men who love you, men who love your word, men who love your body, that you have called and given this desire to serve the church in this way. Uh, Father, that we would raise them up and train them well and invest in them and install them to lead us and to guide us and to teach us and equip us in the days ahead. We thank you for your design for your church. We thank you that even you've told us that the, the, the principalities and powers, they stand in awe of your plan for the church. And so we should too. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.